Hey, what's up, everybody? This is The Legendary Tales. I am your host, Isadora martin Day, and you are with Adam Bloor. Hi, guys. Y'all, folks. And, <laughs> and we lied to you because yesterday I told you you wouldn't have an episode this week because our week had been pretty exhausting and we just hadn't quite managed to get there. No, we haven't gotten around to it. So I'm really sorry about that. Our bad. But to wake up this morning to the fairly devastating news that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away was enough inspiration for me to get my button gear and add to what I already knew about this legendary figure. And now I get to tell you about it. Go for it. And Adam about it. Yeah. So it was really interesting to me to know that, obviously I'm English, but I've lived in the States for 12 or 13 years now. And uh, for those that don't know me, I am a massive feminist and... I pretty liberal and RBG has consequently become somebody that I have become a great big fan of. And to find out this morning that no one sitting around my dining table in England really knew who she was was kind of a shock. So I'm doing this for them as much as for you guys at home because I'm so sure some of you already know this information. Are most of our listeners from England? No, most of our Legendary Tales listeners are in fact from the States. Oh. So RGB, well, that's my dyslexia coming into play. You said RBG. You said RGB. I said RGB. I meant RBG. Yeah. She was actually born J.R.B., Joan Rutha Bader, in Brooklyn in 1933. Her father was a, a Jewish immigrant from the Ukraine, and her mother was born in New York City, but to Australia, uh, Austrian Jewish parents. Her older sister died of meningitis at age six when... Um, Ruth was 14 months old and she became known as Joan uh, her name was changed from Joan to Ruth after she went to school and there were so many Joans in the school that her parents just started calling her Ruth um, I guess a teacher suggested it was a good idea so obviously born in 1933 she managed to live through the Second World War and you can imagine that being Jewish certainly solidified some of her identifying messages but she wasn't a devoutly Jewish, uh, her family wasn't devoutly Jewish, but she did learn Hebrew, attended a synagogue, and went to Jewish summer programs. Her mother was actually very intelligent and graduated from school at 15, but her parents chose to send her uncle, Ruth's uncle, her mother's brother, to school instead of her mother, and her mother vowed basically that that would never be the case for Ruth that she would get a very good education and she would be able to take it as far as that she could. Apparently, according to Wikipedia, her mother thought she'd get about as far as a history teacher. <laughs> and that was ambitious. Mm. Um, that brings me to my sources today. The Guardian, an article by Tom Lutz and Martin Pengley, um, a BBC article by Holly Hondrich and Jessica Lussenhop. NPR has done many articles on her, which I took different bits of information from, and an article from Nina Tottenberg, who's a journalist who is a good friend of Ruth Bader Ginsburg that she released this morning, was very interesting to me in building more than just kind of her stats. Mm. Because her stats actually... I've, I've done a very rare thing. Usually I do a lot of, like, copying, pasting, and kind of doing it from memory. I've actually handwritten a lot of notes today, because I want to make sure I do her justice. I will say that her legal stuff, I'm 
basically going to read. Yeah. Because my knowledge and understanding of it is not good enough that I can paraphrase it mm. into my own language. So she went to James Madison High School. And the day before she graduated, her mother died of cancer. And unfortunately, cancer is something that has been with Ruth um, her entire life. Obviously, we're going to go into a whole load of stuff, but I'm just going to kind of break it up with a few different bits of stuff that people have said about her. And I'm starting off with a quote by uh, Melania Trump, Mm. who actually released a thing today saying, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing is an immense loss. Her tenancy and strength were matched by her intellect and compassion. Her spirit will live on in all that she has inspired. My prayers are with her family and all that loved her. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is how she really did inspire deep love and respect from all sides. Mm -hmm. And the great love affair of her life, which was with her husband of 53 years, Marty Ginsburg. Mm. So she attended Cornell University where she met Marty on a blind date. They married shortly after her graduation. And he, I guess, had gone to school based on some form of military service scholarship. Yeah, GI Bill or something. Um, So he had to go to uh, Fort Still to do his military service. And she, after her graduation, she moved there with him. Is still in New York? I want to say Ohio. Okay, you're looking at me like I just made that up. So hang on, I will look. You back might be right. I don't know anything about military bases. I'll look at my printed notes, which will have that. Oklahoma. Yeah, began with an O. Nearly. Nearly. Um, she couldn't even get a. She tested really well for the, like the military aptitude testing, mm-hmm. but they still wouldn't give her a job because she was a woman. So she got a job working as a typist. Mm-hmm. Um, she then got, uh, pregnant, and she lost her job because of that. Mm. So two years later, with her new daughter, June, in tow, they moved back to the East Coast and they attended Harvard, where she was only one of nine women accepted into a class of 500. Wow. And one of the more famous kind of quotes of that is that the dean of admissions at Harvard asked any of the women that potentially were going to have a place, why they should take a place that should go to a man instead. So I guess she managed to argue that quite well. Yeah. Yes. Um, sure she did. <laughs> she, I, I mean, I don't think, this was not like one of those things where her light was hidden. The moment she started attending Harvard, she was a star. Yeah. And top of her class. However, and unfortunately, Marty was diagnosed with testicular cancer while they were at Harvard. Jeez. Yeah. So they both were at Harvard. They were both at Harvard. They were both at Harvard. Um, yeah, not not a not a stupid couple here. No, not at all. Um, (laughs) not even a little bit. So obviously, he went through surgeries and radiation and a whole load of other stuff. He said that left Ruth with a three year old child, a fairly sick husband, the law review, classes to attend, and feeding him. Adam has the like. Nervous. Very fidgety right You're now. very fidgety. So her entire life was just, I mean, Taking she would get, well, she would get school. a couple of hours sleep a night, basically. And she said that that would totally set her up for her work ethic throughout her life, yeah. which was balancing a baby, her sick husband, 
law. Mm. Um, anyway, just yeah, it's uh, a lot. She was her fortitude even from day one was incredible. Luckily, he survived, and he graduated actually a year in front of her, and he got a job in New York City working as a lawyer. So she followed him to New York and actually graduated from Columbia mm. at the top of her class. However, being Jewish, a woman, and a mother, once she graduated, she couldn't get a job. Mm-hmm. And it took uh, one of her professors um, who, I mean, obviously put his neck on the line, a guy named Gerald Gunther, who approached one of the judges, Edmund Palmari, and said that promised her him that if she couldn't do the job, he would send him a replacement. Mm-hmm. But also that if he didn't give her a chance, he would never send him any of his clerks again. Okay. Um, so apparently he picked the best ones and this guy thought it was worth taking the risk on her. Yeah. So she did actually get the job and she lasted there two years, whereas most people last one. Okay. So... This was at a law firm? Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, working for a judge. So Working for a judge. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's called clerking. Yeah. Oh, you said clerk. I was like, I thought, I thought you meant to say client, and that no. So she was a clerk. It was a clerkship. Gotcha. And I learned about that by watching West Wing. Uh, People would come in and be like, he clerked for two years for so and so and so and so. What does that mean? I, I don't know, but I got enough. Um, she then learned Swedish, so she could get a different job. Oh. I another just a different job. Uh, very specifically, she was working for. Andra, Anders Bruselius, a Swedish civil procedure scholar. How quickly did she learn that language? I don't know. That's incredible. So that she could do a project on international procedure, and she co-authored a book with him mm. from Columbia University. You know, as you do. So in 63, she finally got a teaching job at Rutgers. As a professor. As a professor. And now we're going to move into, remember I was saying that one of my sources was a friend of hers, the mm-hmm. journalist. I'm going to read into a little bit of what he, she said happened next because it's kind of, like I said, she kind of gave more human yeah. things on it. She actually got pregnant 10 years after her first child was born. She had never expected to get pregnant again because of Marty's extensive radiation treatments for testicular cancer um, when they were in law school. So not only was she surprised, uh, so not only was she surprised and so was the doctor, because after telling her who she was about to come for a mother for a second time, the doctor asked her, who is the father? Mm-hmm. So learning from her previous one, she actually hid her pregnancy this okay. time. And it worked, mm-hmm. because she actually got her job renewed at Rutgers right. before they found out yeah. she was pregnant. Because yeah, yeah. let's face it, in 1963, firing a woman because she's pregnant. Not, yep. Not that much of a big deal. Mm. This was also when she worked her first big like gender discrimination case, which was uh, about a man named Charles Moritz. And it's really, I, I mean, I find her cases fascinating, but the point of this one was that he was looking after his elderly mother, so he took the dependent deduction on his IRS returns, on his mm-hmm. tax returns. And... The IRS said that that was actually only something that a woman, widow, or divorced men could take. What? I don't... Basically, they said that because he was a married man looking after his mother, it could only be claimed by, I guess, his wife, not him. Yeah. So, 
she and Marty worked together on this one because he was a tax lawyer. Mm -hmm. And the tax court concluded that the Internal Revenue Code was immune to constitutional challenge. So the two of them took on the case, him from a tax perspective and her from constitutional one. And she won in the lower courts and petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court stating that the decision casted a... They, they petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court saying that the lower court's decisions casted a cloud of unconstitutionality over hundreds of federal statutes. And it att attached a list of those statutes mm -hmm. which it had compiled. You're just talking about setting precedent at this point, aren't you? Yeah. Okay. And she basically made it her goal that they had listed out all the ways that her, her first case could change constitutional mm -hmm. law, and she made it her goal basically to take each one of those things and just... D and just have them changed? Yeah. Um, so 1972 was a big year for her. She became the first tenured professor ever at Columbia mm. University, and she also founded the Women's Rights Project at the American Civil Liberties Union, and she'd go, later on, uh, go on later to become their lead counsel. Mm -hmm. um, so that was pretty much... Her next big case was actually just right before that, and it was one of the reasons why that she got the job at Columbia, which was a case called Reed versus Reed, where she represented Sally Reed, whose son had died. Mm -hmm. And when her son had died, her ex-husband was made executor of his estate, mm -hmm. not her, yeah. automatically because he was a man. Mm -hmm. So she actually took it to Supreme Court that said, you can't, just automatically make someone an executor mm. or something because they're a man. How old was their son? I don't know. I didn't get that. I just want. I'm sure that I, I just didn't know if it was like a, if they. Used I assume like they got to be old enough to have. A... I assume they got to be old enough to have an estate. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the brief states activated activated by feminists of both sexes. Courts and legislators have begun to recognize the claim of women to fully membership the class person. The class persons, I'm quoting that, entitled to due entitled to due process guarantees of life and liberty and equal protection of the law. Mm. It was the first time the Supreme Court had struck down a law because of based on gender based discrimination. Very cool. So it was the first time that they really acknowledged that in the Constitution, when they say persons, uh -huh. they mean women too. Mm. So pretty, you know, she did pretty stellar on that. All right. So she had a slow and steady attitude towards her work. She didn't believe in going straight in and just basically trying to make the Supreme Court recognize that women were equal. Mm. She decided to say chip away at these different things. And she actually has come a, said that she felt like a kindergarten teacher trying to explain gender discrimination <laughs> to an all-male mm -hmm. justice court. I will say that there had been a female justice on the bench before this. Yeah. Sandra... Um, day and but at this point that she was doing this in the 70s where this was this massive female rights movement she there was no one on the bench to actually yeah. represent women's rights so her approach was cautious and highly strategic she favored incre incrementalism thinking it was wise to dismantle sexist laws and policies one by one rather than the risk of asking them to outlaw all mm -hmm. She won five of her six cases at this point. 
a lot of them, actually, she was representing men. Mm-hmm. So kind of we talked about that first case that she did. Yeah. She realized that by representing men and showing how sexism discrimination could conversely affect men, mm. adversely affect men, yeah. that she would be able to chip away at it much more successfully. Like another one was um, she represented a widower who was denied benefits when his wife died. So his wife died during childbirth, mm-hmm. I think, if I remember correctly. From I read a lot of her cases. And she argued that, well, just because he was a man doesn't mean he shouldn't get her benefits. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess up until that point wasn't the case. Hmm. Which is... Weird. It's all weird. I mean, I, 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 when you say when you say the, the things that she accomplished out loud, you're like, why would we have ever needed to do that in the first place? I know! But... And, but yet she's Thank God. doing this. <laughs> I know. Here's another quote from uh, Ginsburg at the Supreme Court. This absolute exclusion based on gender per se operates to the disadvantage of female workers, their surviving spouses, and their children. His case was the perfect example of how gender-based discrimination hurts everybody, mm-hmm. and that's why she chose to take it. Mm-hmm. She was doing it smart yeah all right we're gonna move back to marty and her like absolute stellar romance during all of this apparently her son was getting into quite a lot of trouble at school and she was getting wrong fairly consistently (laughs) to come and sort him out and apparently she got really fed up of it at one point and told the school basically they had to try her husband first and then all the school stopped calling because they didn't think any of the incidences were important enough to waste a man's time mm. versus a woman's time. Even though at this point she was like on the fast track to becoming one of the most powerful lawyers in the country. Yeah. And Marty was very happy to be a supporting role in mm. her... Was he still a lawyer? Was he still yeah. working at this point? Yeah, tax lawyer, but, you know... Different, so obviously, yeah. Yeah, he was very happy to be very much more... Yeah. Her support system. Mm -hmm. So she said that her personal life was totally anchored by her marriage to him. And they split most of the childcare and housework 50-50, but Marty did virtually all the cooking. Um, He said he learned fairly early on, and I learned fairly early on in my marriage to Ruth, that she was a fairly terrible cook and, for lack of interest, unlikely to improve. So he was also one of the major people that championed his wife's lobbying onto the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. He said that the most important thing he did in his own life is to enable Ruth to do what she has done. Ruth, for no one that's seen a picture, go look her up, but she was like five foot nothing. She rode horses well into her 70s, went parasailing, did a whole load of stuff. Marty went alongside her for all of it in... She says that Marty was the first person that fell in love with her brain. Hmm. So really, like, the most amazing uh, romance. Unfortunately, um, he his cancer did return um, later on. And going back to her cooking thing, one of the same friend wrote that when she was looking after him, doing her normal, you know, four hours into sleep, mm-hmm. supreme, she was Supreme Court Justice at this point, yeah. looking after her husband... Um, they took her over a foil tray of food and they said, do you know how to heat it up? And she said, yeah, I put it in the microwave. And they said, no, <laughs> <laughs> you put it in the oven. 
and she looked blankly, and then they had to teach her how to use her oven. <laughs> so to say that Marty was a modern man mm. is rather underestimating yeah. the huge amount of support and love that he gave her. So moving back to her career, in 1980, Jamie Carter nominated her to the United, Supreme, uh, United States Court of Appeals for D.C., her decisions on the appeals court were often moderate, even though she had developed a reputation, obviously, for pushing women's mm. rights. She actually sided with the conservatives quite a lot, mm. um, including rehearing the case of a soldier who was, what's the word for fired when you're a soldier? I almost said deported. That's not the word. Um, whatever. Kicked out the U.S. Navy for being gay. And she was publicly critical of the legal reasoning behind Roe versus Wade. Hmm. So, really, she proved herself to be quite a moderate. And she was absolutely not the Clintons' first choice. Right. For many reasons. I think they thought perhaps she would be hard to get through a nomination, mm -hmm. um, just based on her fact that she was a woman. Um. However, when discharged. she... Discharged. Discharged. Okay, thank you. <laughs> However, when she was nominated, in fact, the uh, board gave her the highest recommendation, almost that she's anyone's ever been given to be nominated yeah. to the Supreme Court. And we'll get into how many days it took her to be um, confirmed, but she's, I think, one of the shortest confirmations on history. Um, so... Uh, she... Finally, did right before she became a Supreme Court, did manage to uh, ram home that the fourteen mem Fourteenth Amendment Equal Protection Clause, nor shall any state deny any person the equal protection of the laws. She did finally get them to kind of acknowledge in the bigger picture that any person covers women as men mm. as men. So, and it was in that seventies period, right before she started moving into judges that she got that kind of big thing so um hang on okay so she one of her first things that she did when she became a supreme court justice was she worked on the virginia military institute case which is very nearby where we are mm -hmm. uh, or were in virginia and she actually wrote the court's opinion um, it was a 7-1 opinion, declaring that the Virginia Military Institute could no longer remain an all-male institute. She said most women, indeed most men, would not be able to meet the rigorous demands of the MI, mm -hmm. but they couldn't exclude any women who could meet those demands. Mm -hmm. Reliance on overbroad generalization, estimates about the way that men or most women are will not suffice to deny opportunity to women whose talents and capacity place them outside the average description. So I don't know, for me that was a really interesting quote because she's not saying that men and women are the same. Yeah. She's saying that but the if you set the same bar mm -hmm. And they reach it. Yeah, there's no reason not to. You have yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. You have to treat them the same. Yeah, just kind of different, like than yeah. the idea of you have to let fifty fifty in. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's it is a different thing. It's interesting, yeah. And they said while Virginia serves the state's sons, it makes no provision whatsoever for her daughters. That is not full and equal protection under the Constitution. Were these? Mm, 
people joining the military? The, uh, the Virginia Military Institute is like a school. It's a university, okay. I think. Okay. Um, for feeding for military. military officers gotcha. in. Okay. And so it was a it was just kind of a big thing, and pretty much once she got onto the Supreme Court, she started moving left more and more. Mm. And that was in response to after she got on the Supreme Court, they started, I believe, the next justice that was appointed was much more right. Mm -hmm. So she really felt like her job was to help make sure the Supreme Court remained balanced. Yeah. Which I think it, Maybe, yeah, yeah. most justices feel the same way, and they're there hopefully. to... Hopefully. Um, she held up Obamacare in 2010 and helped legalize same-sex marriage. She... Also was critical, we'll get into, but she uh, she was critical of Donald Trump, mm. but she was also critical a bit more of the Supreme Court itself um, and wrote an op-ed at one point calling the court's, dis court's opinion can hardly be described as an exemplar of restraint and moderate decision-making, which I guess in Supreme Court terms is like the biggest burn you could <laughs> give somebody because I read a lot of articles about how <laughs> insulting calling it a not an example of restraint and moderate decision-making <laughs> was. <laughs> so, uh, you know, go figure. And But amongst all of this, like, she started to gain this, like, legendary status, right? Mm -hmm. Part of that was because somebody set up an account called the Notorious RBG. And also part of that was that she fell asleep in the 2015 State of the Union. Yeah. And when she was asked about whether she fell asleep in the State of the Union, she admitted, although she had vowed not to drink at the dinner with the other justices before the speech, the wine had been too good to resist. And as a result, she was perhaps not entirely sober hmm. and kept nodding off, which hmm. I just think is highlights how she went through life, which was she did try and be a the best version of what she could be, but she was still utterly human. Yeah. I, but then there's so many things that were inhuman. Marty died in 2010, and after 56 years of marriage, she was on the bench the next day mm -hmm. working, reading an opinion paper, because that's what Marty would have wanted. Yeah. Like, I'm going to talk to you about one of the cases that I think that she was most, to me, I'm really, like, I think a lot of the cases that I've talked about already, with the exception of same-sex marriage, which I was thoroughly involved in, and having opinions, but there was. Do you remember the thing with Hobby Lobby? Yeah, where they vaguely where they refused to pay for women's contraceptions. I think so. Okay, so yeah, I, did, I definitely remember that. Yeah. In two thousand and fourteen, yeah. Hobby Lobby said that because of religious grounds, they did not have to comply with a federal mandate to cover birth control and health care mm -hmm. plans, and she was one of the most vocal distants about this and talking basically about this idea of a slippery slope, which mm. is usually something that the right wing argument used a lot on gun control. But on hers, she said, denying legions of women who do not hold on, hold their employees' benefits, access to contraceptive coverage can be hard to find a stopping point. Because what happens if your employee's religious belief is not to pay the minimum wage or not to accord women equal pay? Mm. If it's in the Constitution, if it's in law, your religious freedoms... And, and that was her 
she was religious. Obviously, she was Jewish and she was raised in a fairly conservative way. But I think it's really interesting to note that most of what she talked about and what a justice should talk about is actually balancing it within the bounds of the law, mm. not within the bounds of their own personal opinion. Mm-hmm. And Hobby Lobby lost, and I'm glad about that. But it's just really interesting that that was one of the big things that she kind of was very vocally mm. dissenting about. So she had five major run-ins with cancer. She had colon cancer in 1999, pancreatic cancer, lung cancer in 2018, pancreatic cancer again, and then liver lesions in 2020. Justice O'Connor, who was the first woman to sit on the bench, Supreme Court bench, had breast cancer in the 1980s. And she was said to have suggested to Ginsburg that she should schedule her chemotherapy for Friday so she could use the weekends off to recover for oral arguments on Monday. Mm. It worked because Ginsburg, through all of those cancer treatments, only missed twice. Wow. She is also said to have followed the advice of opera singer Marilyn Holm, who was diagnosed with pancreatic, pancreatic, cancer, in 2000, pancreatic cancer in 2005. She said, I will live. Not that I hope to live or I want to live, but I will live. There was a bit of controversy during the Obama era because she refused to step down off the bench. When? Uh, or for what reason? I mean, because she was because of her illness. Because she was getting sicker, and yeah. people wanted Obama to have the chance to appoint a younger, healthier liberal justice to uh-huh. the bench. But she was very worried that that person wouldn't then get confirmed by the Supreme Court because uh, w- by the Republican mm-hmm. GOP mm-hmm. at that point. So she refused to step down. She. All of these things continued to grow her icon status mm. and introduced her to a generation of young feminists and she became a cult figure. Um, the notorious RVG was the subject of a documentary, an award-winning biopic, and countless best-selling novels. She inspired Saturday Night Live skits and her likeness plastered on monks and T-shirts. It was beyond my wildest imagination that I would one day become the notorious RBG. Hmm. I am now 86 years old, and yet people of all ages want to still take their picture with me. Her friend said, Ruth really did love love the attention. At the opera, when her tiny figure wrapped in a coat and a babushka would enter the Kennedy Center Opera House from a side entrance... I don't know how, but people would see her and the role would begin, mm. soon followed by a standing ovation and loud cheering. She loved it. And amid COVID, she tipped wearing a mask with her tiny face printed all over it. Mm. The last big kind of ripple she made to consolidate her liberalism, mm. I guess, which was growing, I think, is what I've realized from reading this. She was very into women's rights, but her liberalism was not necessarily growing was she said when Trump was elected, I can't imagine what the country will be with Donald Trump as our president. She joked that her husband, who died in 2010, would have said it was time for us to move to New Zealand. (laughs) Trump responded harshly on Twitter, surprisingly, calling for Ginsburg to resign. The Washington Post said her remarks were inappropriate, and the New York Times editorial pages sided with Trump. 
She actually apologised and said, on reflection, my recent remarks in response to press inquiries were ill-advised. I regret making them. Judges should avoid commenting on how on a candidate for public office. In the future, I will be more circumspect. At no point did she actually backpedal Mm -mm. how she felt in that particular instance. There was no, I was wrong. No, no, no. Just I should have kept my mouth closed. Yeah. Asked by NPR in 2019 if she had any regrets given the challenge she had faced in life, Ginsburg's supreme self-belief shone through. And she said, no, I do think I was born under a very bright star. Hmm. She passed away, obviously, yesterday, um, after finally losing her battle cancer, surrounded by friends and family. And it leaves a lot of questions. Not primarily... Are they going to confirm a new justice to mm-hmm. the bench while uh, President Trump is still in office? At those might remember that four years ago, at about this time, Obama had a seat open on the Supreme Court mm-hmm. bench, and the Republicans we were very, very vocal, and Mitch McConnell refused for nearly a year to allow any of Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominees. Mm -hmm. However, uh, because back then his justification was that the upcoming presidential election, which he said would allow voters a chance to weigh in on what kind of justice they wanted should be heard. Mm -hmm. However, he has already gone on record and said that he will not follow the same course this time. Instead, he'll try immediately to push for a Trump nominee so as to ensure a conservative justice, Mm. um, even if Trump was to lose his right... uh, re-election bid the november elections take place in 46 days and i am pulling this last bit directly from someone much more intelligent than me uh for those wondering if it's too short a time for donald trump and the republican held senator to usher in ruth Bader ginsburg's successor the answer is it is not Bader ginsburg herself was confirmed in just 42 days cnn produced a list of how long it took to replace the super current supreme court justices brett kavanaugh took 88 days Neil Gorsha, 65 days. Elena Kagan, 87 days. Sonia Sotomayor, 66 days. And Samuel Altio, 82 days. John Roberts was 62 days. Clarence Thomas, 99 days. The last public statement that RBG put out was that it was her most fervent wish that I will not be replaced until a new president Mm. is installed. I'm going to finish with a little quote from Marty. And this was the letter that he wrote her. And for anyone that hasn't seen the Notorious RBG documentary, uh, she actually reads this letter out. And it's the only time you see like her cry in through the whole documentary. My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have ever loved. I have admired and loved you almost since the day we met at Cornell. The time has come for me to take leave of my life because of the loss of quality simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out but I understand you may not. I will not love you a jot less. So that is the story of RBJ. G. G. And my dyslexia comes out again. At the end. Yeah. And really, she was an extraordinary woman. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Who... A very apt candidate for this podcast. Yes. Utterly and totally legendary. Mm. And not what we were planning on doing. No, but it did seem appropriate. And I think you did a good job. Thank you. I pulled a lot of information, and 
I will say for anyone who is interested, go and read the NPR stuff about who she was as a person, mm. not just as her stats. Her stats are incredibly impressive. She fought like 300 cases of sexual discrimination in one year when she was in early on in her career. Mm. Like her stats are amazing. And it's no wonder that she proceeded to become one of the most respected judges and lawyers in the country. Mm-hmm. I don't know that her asking to wait until a new president is installed is enough reason for there not to be a new Supreme Court justice nominated. Mm -hmm. But I do hope, as she said fervently, that there would at least be something on both sides that seems like a... They need to sort this out. Yeah. They can't... Six years ago, this uh, four years ago this happened, and it proved at that moment that there was nothing really clearly in place as to what was to be done in these kind of circumstances. Mm-hmm. I personally thought that four years ago that if Obama could have got the nomination through in his presidency, he absolutely should have been able to do that. Yeah. And I absolutely believe that again right now, mm. which is that we do not have a new president. President Trump is the president. And if he can get a nomination through, yeah, he should absolutely be allowed to do that. Mm. It's worth pointing out he has a fight in his hands because Mitt Romney's already pissed about the whole thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can't have one rule for one or not for another. Yeah, um, It's the whole point of the of the Supreme Court. But I hope that they find someone as amazing as she is who's... Yeah, it'd be, t- it'd be a tough seat to fill. Yeah. And who's... Some big shoes. And she had tiny feet. Tiny, tiny feet. Do you know she weighed like 85 pounds? She was a, she was a very small lady. Jeez. Okay. All right, so that is Legendary. We will be back with you on Tuesday with an episode. A full one. A full one. Um, But I really hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you learned a little something. And please tell me, like, what what your memories are or what your thoughts are, and did you know any of this? Because I know a lot of people in England will be hearing a lot of this information for the first time. Yeah. And probably won't be understanding why the American counterparts will be reeling from this loss and creating a huge battle in the United States for the next few months. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.